Well, good morning. I'm Julie Coleman, and I'm part of the teaching team here in New Hope. And we're delighted everyone's here today. I see some unfamiliar faces and some very familiar faces. Well, kids, we have a big treat for you today. You know how your mom's always telling you, be quiet at church? Today is the day, your day. You are going to get to make lots of noise. It's the truth. And I'll tell you, I was a teacher for 20 years, mostly in the fifth grade, and I didn't like it when my kids made a lot of noise, but this is the day. Okay, so this is what happens. I'm going to be telling you the story today from the book of Esther. It's in the Old Testament, and it's a story about God rescuing his people, and there are good guys in the story, and there are bad guys in the story. The worst guy of all, his name is Haman. Say that name. Haman. And every time that I say the name Haman, I want you to boo. I want you to make noise with your noisemaker. Just let everybody know that's the bad guy, right? In case we forget. Okay, so we're going to practice. Now, you have to keep your noisemakers totally quiet until I say the name Haman. Oh, yeah. I think you got this. Okay, so I have pictures. No story's good without pictures, right? And um, I'm going to read you the story, and every time I say the name Haman, you remind us that's the bad guy, okay? Well, the story of Purim begins at a magnificent banquet held at the court of the Persian king Ahasuerus. Most people believe he was also known as Xerxes. The week-long celebration was held in Susa, the ancient Persian city which contained the winter palace of the king. There were actually two separate banquets being held, one for the king and his counselors and all the men of Susa. The other was given by the queen, Queen Vashti, for the women of the court and nobility. After doing a lot of drinking, King Xerxes sent for the queen to appear before the men at his banquet. She was noted for her beauty, and he wished to show her off to the city. But Queen Vashti was from ancient and noble lineage. She did not want to be paraded around in front of a room full of drunk men, and it was not a suitable thing for a queen to do. So she refused to come, and her refusal was a humiliation for the king. Xerxes, still half drunk and embarrassed, was furious with her failure to obey his command, and his counselors told him that he owed it to the men of the kingdom to make an example out of Queen Vashti. When the other Persian women heard how she had acted, they might treat their husbands with that same disrespect. So Xerxes issued a public decree that Vashti was to be banished. Her royal position would be given to one who was more worthy than she had proved to be. A nationwide search for a new queen began. It would be a beauty contest. Of course, if the king's going to choose a wife, she better be pretty, right? The prettiest girls in the land were to be brought to Susa for 12 months of beauty treatments and to live in the king's harem, and then one of them would be finally chosen to be the new queen. A young Jewish girl was among the candidates. Her Jewish name was Hadassah. Her Persian name was... Esther. 
She was an orphan raised by her older cousin, Mordecai, who loved her like a daughter. Well, before she left to go to the palace to get the beauty treatments and live there for 12 months, Mordecai warned Esther not to tell anyone that she was Jewish. They were aliens, and they were in a foreign land, and she might be treated badly if anybody knew. Esther was beautiful on the inside and outside. The man in charge of all the women was very impressed with Esther. When it was her turn to meet the king, he advised her on what to bring and what to say. Everyone loved Esther. The Bible says she found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. The king felt the same way. Out of all the beautiful women in the land, he chose Esther to be his new queen. He crowned her and gave her a great banquet to celebrate. Not long after her installation as queen, Esther's uncle Mordecai overheard two guards talking at the king's gate, and they were planning to assassinate, to kill the king. He told Esther, who in turn warned the king, and those plotters were hanged, and Mordecai's good deed was recorded in something called the Book of Chronicles. One of the king's most important administrators was a man named, get ready for it, Haman! He was a man of great influence and power, and the king gave him authority over all the princes in the kingdom. Everyone bowed down to him when he passed by the king's gate, except one person, Mordecai. His refusal to bow down was insulting and infuriated Haman. Some of the other men at the gate asked Mordecai why he would not bow down to Haman. He told him because it was he was a Jew. When they reported this to Haman, his anger burned not just against Mordecai, but against all the Jewish people that were living in the land. He started a plot to have every Jew killed. To decide when it should happen, he cast lots called Pur, which is where we get the name Purim from. And uh, they indicated that it should happen on the 12th month, the month of Adar, nine months from then. Haman then went to the king and filled his mind with ideas about the Jews. He labeled them as different from the rest of the empire. They obeyed different laws, and they were actual danger to the king's reign. The Jews, said Haman, must be eliminated for the good of the kingdom. The king fell for it, not having a clue that Esther, his queen, and Mordecai, the man to whom he owned his life, were both Jews. They agreed on a date for the slaughter, and the king issued a decree. He sent messengers to carry the decree all across the land to every corner of the empire. Then the king and Haman sat down to have a celebratory drink. When Mordecai read the decree, he did what all the Jews did upon hearing the news. He tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth, and he rubbed ashes into his head. He made no secret of his grief, wailing loudly for everyone to hear. Anyone in mourning was not allowed past the king's gate, but eventually Esther did hear about Mordecai's mourning through others who saw him while passing through the gate to the palace. She didn't know why Mordecai was in such agony, but she sent him new clothes, and he sent them back unused. So Esther sent the man in charge of her out to meet Mordecai. 
Mordecai told him about the slaughter edict and the money that had already been paid from the treasury to make that plan happen. He wanted Esther to approach the king to tell him she was a Jew and plead for mercy for her people. The eunuch went back and he reported all this to Esther. Esther was terrified. I tell him I can't approach the king without being summoned, she told the eunuch. Anyone who does that is put to death unless by some miracle he extends his scepter, his ruling stick, to him. He hasn't sent for me in 30 days. There's no reason to think he'd be pleased to see me now. Mordecai was not going to accept Esther's fearful excuse. He told the eunuch to tell her, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Esther got the point. She could be a part of God's plan to deliver his people or not, but God would accomplish his purposes and keep his promises to his people. It would be better to die trying than to sit back and do nothing. So Esther sent one more message to King Mordecai, to Mordecai. Go, assemble all the Jews in Susa, pray and fast for me. I will do the same with my maidens in the palace, and then I'll approach the king. And if I die, I die. The big, scary day arrived pretty quickly. Esther put on her royal robes and went into the court of the king. The king looked up and saw Esther at the end of the long hall. He lit up with a smile and extended his scepter toward the uninvited guest with great relief. She walked to his throne and touched the top of his scepter. What troubles you, Queen Esther, the king asked. He knew something must, important must be happening for Esther to risk her life by approaching him when she hadn't been summoned. What do you need? Even up to half my kingdom is yours for the asking. Esther bowed low to the ground. I would like to invite the king to a special meal that I have prepared for him. It pleases him to come. And I would like him to bring his right-hand man, Haman, as well. The king loved this idea. He quickly summoned Haman. And together they went to a beautiful banquet that Esther had prepared. Everything about the meal and Esther's company pleased the king. So he told her again, what is it you need? I'll do whatever you wish. Up to half my kingdom can be yours for the asking. Esther wanted some little more time to soften the king's heart even more. She asked him if he would come to a second banquet the next night. And could he bring his right-hand man with him? The king agreed. Haman was of himself when he left the palace that day. No one else was honored like he was, being invited to a private banquet with just the king and queen. But his pleasure in his accomplishment didn't last long. As he walked through the king's gate on the way home, he passed Mordecai. That blasted man still refused to bow down to him as all the others were doing. It made him crazy with rage. When he got home, he told his wife about the banquet and how he'd been invited back for the next day for a second feast. But his pleasure and all of that was ruined every time he thought about that stupid
stubborn Mordecai refusing to honor him. His wife and his friends sympathized, but they also reminded him of the great power that he had by order of the king. Build the gallows, 50 cubits high, and ask the king to hang Mordecai on it, they told him. Once that's over, you can go enjoy the banquet knowing he'll never get the chance to insult you again. Haman thought that was a splendid idea. So he ordered the gallows to be built. Meanwhile, back at the palace, the king was having trouble sleeping. He ordered that the royal chronicles be read to him to lull him to sleep. Nothing like a boring book to get you to close your eyes. The servant read the account of Mordecai's warning of the assassination plot against the king. Xerxes sat up in bed. What reward was given to Mordecai, he asked. He was told uh, nothing had been done for Mordecai. The king shook his head. Mordecai's reward was long overdue. Who's in court right now, he asked. Lo and behold, Haman had just entered the court, having come to ask the king about hanging Mordecai on his new gallows the next day. The king had him brought to his personal quarters. What ideas do you have that would greatly greatly honor someone the king wishes to reward, he asked his right-hand man. Haman could barely keep his delight to himself. Of course the king wanted to honor him. So he tried to think of his fondest wish. Let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn and the horse on which the king has ridden put a royal crown on his head and let one of the princes lead him around on horseback, proclaiming, this is the man the king wishes to honor. Then he got ready to act surprised when the king told him the honor was for him. The king thought that was a great idea. Excellent. I want you to do exactly that for Mordecai the Jew. Haman's face went from a brilliant smile of anticipation to total astonishment. He was surprised all right. Honor Mordecai? This was his worst nightmare. But there was no choice. One does not disobey the king. And he did just as he commanded. He led Mordecai through the streets, robed in royal garments and crown, on the king's horse, proclaiming his honor to everyone they met. But inwardly, he seethed with rage and hatred. Soon it was evening again. And for the second banquet, Haman and the king once again enjoyed Esther's special preparations. As they reclined over a glass of wine, the king asked Esther once again, what's your petition? It will be granted you. Esther took a deep breath. This was the moment of truth. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given as my request. For my people and I have been marked for destruction. I wouldn't even bother you about this if we'd only been sold as slaves, for it wouldn't be worth your trouble. But we are talking about complete annihilation here, and I beg you to stop this terrible thing from happening. The king took one look at his beautiful queen and felt nothing but outrage. Who's planning such a thing? Who would dare to threaten my beautiful queen and her people? Esther, 
pointed her finger at the king's right-hand man. A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman! Furious! The king jumped up from his place. Beside him, he stomped out without a word into the garden. Haman forced himself up on shaky knees. He was dead meat unless he could somehow beg and receive mercy from the queen. Falling onto her reclining couch, he began to plead for his life. And the king walked back in just at that moment. Didn't look good. Will he even assault the queen with me just outside the door? The king said. Seeing the king's fierce anger, one of the eunuchs standing in attendance made a timely suggestion. There is a new gallows standing about 50 cubits high that this man built to hang Mordecai on, the one you just honored this morning, O king. The king saw the ironic justice in this right away. Hang him on it, he commanded. So Haman was hanged on the gallows built for Mordecai. Mordecai was in charge over the household of Haman from that day on. The king also sent out another edict, this time to the Jews. It gave them the right to assemble and defend themselves and to destroy anyone who rose up against them. Riders went out again to the farthest corners of the kingdom to deliver the message. The Jews rejoiced because now anyone who would try to kill them no longer had the support of the king. When the day originally designated for the Jewish slaughter finally arrived, most people in the kingdom actually assisted the Jews and protected them against their enemies. 75,000 enemies were killed in the fighting, and all 10 of Haman's sons were hanged on the gallows. It was a great day of victory. The Jews made it an annual holiday of rejoicing and feasting from that day forward to celebrate God's protection and deliverance of his people. They called it Purim, after the lots that were cast by Haman. And that is what we're celebrating today. Let's pray and thank God for this word. Lord, we thank you for this book, this book that shows you so clearly as a deliverer and a powerful and a faithful God. And uh, we just ask that you would use it to bless us and use it to transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to collect the noisemakers, and then all children that are under school age, preschoolers, are going to leave with Mr. Indicoffer over there and have a class, and the rest of the kids are going to stay put for the rest of the service. Good job, kids and grown-ups. Well, that was fun, right? You know, whenever I read a story in the Bible, I always ask the question, why is this story in the Bible? Right? It's there for a reason. God put it there. And the Bible is meant to tell God tell us about him. He's telling us about himself. It's to reveal himself in ways that his creation can't. So we always should ask, what is God telling us about him through this story? You know, when the Bible was put together many years ago, there were people that didn't think that Esther should be included in the canon, in the Bible, um, because it's a little bit different than the rest of the stories that are included. Because here's the thing. 
in the whole book of Esther, God's name is not mentioned one time. Not once. And even though I said prayer, prayer is not mentioned in the, in the story of Esther either. Fasting is, but not prayer. Why they're fasting. So how can this story then reveal anything about, reveal anything about God? Well, to answer that question, I want to do that today. We need to look at when it was written and why. So I've got a little timeline here that you can take a look. Um, this is actually taken from a, a commentary that I uh, looked at in the book of Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah are books that happened at the same time period, and, um, and Esther is a part of that. So um, what happened was this. Um, Esther was written during the Persian period, which was 539 to 331 B.C. Now, the Babylonians had come in, and they'd conquered the land, and they'd taken almost all of the Israelites out of the land and put them in exile, spread them out all over the Persian Empire, and, or, or the Babylonian Empire at that time. Um, and then, so they were, they were without a country. Then 70 years later, Persia had taken over from Babylon. They were the next empire, and they ruled the Middle East. And the man, or king named Cyrus the Persian allowed anyone who wanted to return to the homeland to go. Over 15,000 people packed up their stuff and headed back to Palestine. And they were excited to do that. Why? Because that was the land of promise. That was the land that God had promised he was going to give Abraham's ascendants to. Um, and so they were going back there. They returned to find Jerusalem and the whole area in complete ruins. So the first order of business was to rebuild the temple because that's where they would be able to offer the sacrifice, follow the Mosaic law, and do all the things that God had required of them as a people. So under the leadership of men like Zerubbabel and Joshua, they worked for 21 years and they finished the temple. There was a big celebration to dedicate the temple, and the Jews settled down to live their lives and wait in the hope that God would do what he promised to do if they returned to him. They wanted him to establish them back into a mighty nation, restore them to a relationship with him, and usher in a time of kingdom blessing. So that's where the stage is set there. But then, 57 years passed. So you've got the rebuilding of the temple, then 57 years and then Ezra comes on the scene. Now, and Ezra's a priest. But in that 57 years, that's the time period in which the events of Esther took place. It was during the Persian Empire when Xerxes was king. Okay? Well, 57 years is a long time to wait for somebody to fulfill a promise. I know, if your mom and dad says, hey, we're going to go to, I don't know, get ice cream, and they take more than an hour to get you there, you're letting them know, okay, let's go, right? Well, 57 years is how long they had been waiting for God to fulfill his promise, and people got discouraged. And they were living in a community where there were lots of different people from all different places all over the world with lots of different religions and gods and things like that. And so they started to get involved with their neighbors, and they started intermarrying with them, taking on wives with their gods, um, and they started incorporating some of those pagan ideas, ideas that weren't about the real God, um, into their own religion. So what started as a remnant of 15,000 people that had come back 
to serve God and be in the promised land, be separate for God. That's what they were all about. It had become watered down. They had compromised. And from the king on down, they started being just like their pagan neighbors. Well, by the time the priest Ezra arrived on the scene, the remnant that had started out with such purpose and determination and bravery, you could hardly recognize them. That originally brave group was beginning to doubt God. And they felt vulnerable. They were surrounded by all these nations that wanting nothing better than to kill them off. They were tired of waiting for God to fulfill his promises. So you know what they needed? They needed to be reminded of the big picture. They needed to be reminded who God was and what he was like in order to be encouraged to stay faithful. So sometime after these events, between 515 and 458, somebody wrote the book of Esther. I would assume it was somebody who had experienced maybe firsthand the events. We don't know who the author was, and we don't even know where he was when he wrote it, but I'm guessing it was in Palestine when he was with those Jews who were discouraged and doubting God. Well, why would this have been really good news for the remnant to hear, those 15,000 people? What would, why would this story have encouraged people? Well, first, when they heard the story, they would know that God had worked on behalf of people who had been disobedient to the return, to the call to return to the land of promise. They chose to ignore God's promises and stay in a land that was opposed to God. These are not the big faithful ones here. These are people who had made their allegiance and decided to stay within Persia. Why do I think that? Well, there's no mention of prayer, no mention of God at all. The law is not mentioned at all in Esther. And there seems to be a general lack of spiritual awareness, uh, except for their assurance that the Jews would be protected. Yet, God had intervened on behalf of the people who didn't seem to be following God's will at all. He was still at work. He was operating in his covenant with the descendants of Abraham in spite of their faithlessness. It gave them hope in God again. The book of Esther would have been a great encouragement to these struggling Jews in Palestine because the writer of Esther showed them, even though not ever saying his name, but God's definite involvement in what was happening in Persia. It also showed his power that he could reverse the most devastating of edicts and make the Jews come out on top. His faithfulness was in spite of their faithlessness. It would really have helped them to realize that those surrounding people, which seemed like such a threat to them as they were there um, looking at the, the nations that surrounded them, that maybe they were awesome, but they could not conquer the unique people of God because God had protected his people even when they were living outside the land. The remnant could and should depend on him for their safety and security as well. The book would also encourage them to worship the God of Israel, reminding them of the faithfulness of God who would keep his promises to the nation. So what? How should the story of Esther impact us today? Well, like that remnant that returned to Palestine, we too are waiting on God to fulfill his promises to us. We're waiting for Jesus to return like he promised. We're waiting for God to fully bring in his kingdom 
and establish it in full scale. We're waiting for him to finish that work that began in us, that salvation. And Philippians promises, he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it in us when we fully will reflect the glory of Christ. And we're waiting on the smaller things, like provision of a better job, maybe healing from an illness or disease, maybe better financial circumstances, or for a loved one to finally come to believe in Christ. For our problems to get resolved, we wait. And you know what? Waiting can sap the life out of you. Isn't it true? If you're looking for the wrong things, that is. The remnant of Palestine, the Jews of Palestine did, they were looking to their leaders who proved to be terrible examples. They were the first ones to start intermarrying with the pagan nations. They looked to other cultures and people groups around them, trying to find kind of a niche in this world. But in the end, it all proved worthless. It led them to faithlessness and disobedience. You know what? Here in the 21st century, we look to other things too. I see it all the time on Facebook. I hear it on Christian radio talk stations and other social media. It's filled with people that are wringing their hands. They've lost hope. They look at our country's leaders and say they've promised things they're not delivering. There's character issues and scandal in our leadership, and it's resulted in a distrust of our government. Christians are being murdered all across the world for their faith. Free speech is being threatened right here in this country, in America. Christians are fretting. Why? Because we're looking at the wrong things. We are not the promised land. This isn't it. It's going to get way better than this. I'm happy to tell you. The Bible is clear. We are aliens on foreign soil. The writer of Hebrews says, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Paul told the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. Just like the Jews residing in Persia or the remnant in Palestine, God is active He's involved, he's powerful, and he's determined to carry out his purposes and carry out his promises. It's his kingdom we are citizens of, and that's we need to keep our focus on our king. And I'm happy to tell you, it doesn't depend on our faithfulness. He acted on behalf of the faithless who refused to return to the homeland. He protected the ones who weren't following his law or careful to remain set apart in Esther's story. Paul says in 2 Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. So what's our response to a world that seems to be going to fall apart all around us? Keep calm and carry on. (laughs) Trust in the one who will do what he said. We're going to look to the king of kings. Jesus described his kingdom like this. It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in his branches. We should trust in our king's goodness. We should trust in our king's power and trust in our king's faithfulness. He will finish what he started, and he'll do it in his way which is always best.
Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for revealing yourself to be a king who is powerful, who will do what he is purposed to do, who will fulfill his words of promise that you will finish what you started. We want, Lord, our eyes to be on you, our true leader, our king of our true citizenship. And we just pray, God, that you would help us to trust you more and more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.